What's on the silver screen? I got some takes you wouldn't believe. Hello and welcome to Popmosis Film. I am Josiah and we are here with we, me being, we being me and you guys, the audience, and of course, my <laughs> friends who are here. Part of my uh, flusteredness was we had a discussion on who was hosting this episode and it turns out it's me. But <laughs> you, you, draw, you draw the short straw. Okay. Yeah, I did. No, I'm happy to host it. We are going to talk today about Blade Runner. So we are with... Paul, so say hi, Paul. What's up? Hey, how's it going? Uh, hope you all are staying safe. And uh, <laughs> yeah, that's that's about it. Enjoy, enjoy, enjoy the show. It's like I hope you're all staying surf, safe during insert whatever cr- new craziness is going on. Kind of oh, like yeah, yeah. like whatever the new thing is, whatever the new thing is. <laughs> and also, as always, with Tyler. Woo! How's it going, Tyler? It's going okay. You know, watch Blade Runner, so that's always good. <laughs> In a depressing way. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just finished it like right before the call. Like that. That's I don't. That, one thing I, I didn't know if you guys were on the call yet. So I got I just in the chat I just go hey and then nobody responded and I was like all right I'm gonna play Hitman. <laughs> anyway, so we're gonna talk about Blade Runner. So I will uh, give us a little bit of a rundown on Blade Runner. This is Blade Runner is one of those movies where is interesting and. I think great as the movie is, it's also maybe more so the sort of the behind the scenes of it is just as interesting yeah. because it was just like, we'll get into it more as we go through. Well, but. And we all watched the final version, right? Yeah. yeah I watched the final, the final cut. version. I final watched cut? the internet. I watched a couple of different versions, um, but wow. I, I've seen all versions multiple times. Yeah. I, I'm mean, I, 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 I won't say I was like one of those people who was like obsessed with Blade Runner. I love the movie. Just it was just Blade Runner was there. Yeah. It's also like this is getting ahead of ourselves. It's one of the first movie that like had a director's cut in the early 90s when they found the print that didn't have the voiceover on it. And we'll get to all that. But it was like it's 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 interesting how it was a revolutionary movie. Well, there's like a, three or four cuts of this film. There's like there's uh there's just the theatrical cut, the director's cut, then one that was called the black cut and then the final cut. There's, oh, there's also the work, work print, the work print, work print. and there's, there's an international cut. There's six cuts of this film, and final cut, yeah. So okay. yeah, but six. Jeez, that's crazy. <laughs> well, that's what like. And I think, joke the, is, like, I think the rarest one is the work print because that was screened like one time in LA, I think. What's the and work? They, what's the work print one? Well, it's I, like I mean, has elements of both the uh, like they use the work print to create the director's cut. So it's kind of in the middle of like the original and the director's cut, like it had oh, elements wow. of both hmm. or something. And but I that's think they that <laughs> We're talking about like all these crazy cuts of this movie, and we haven't even gotten to the movie. But that that's just the oh, legacy yeah. that it has. It's yeah. like that kind of it's that it's a unique movie in that regard, and it's also deserving of being talked about the content of the film, which is like a perfect movie for a podcast. We have a really interesting, great movie. Even if you don't think it's a great movie, it's a really interesting movie. I love the movie, and you have. Then that plus this outside story. So it was released on June 25th, 1982, directed by, of course, Ridley Scott with a script from Hampton Fanter, who was a very before this. He was basically an actor and he didn't do much since then. He has done uh, he did work on Blade Runner 2049. He's done a few things here and there as a writer, but he was an actor like very, very active from 1958 through 78. So Hampton Fancher was really 
an actor, and this was him trying to segue to the other side, hmm. with David Peebles, who kind of took the project over after a certain point when Hampton was just burnt out, who wrote Unforgiven, 12 Monkeys, and a quasi-sort of oh, wow, sequel to Blade Runner, which is kind of Soldier, which is sort of in that same universe in a way. It's not nearly as good a film, but it is Soldier. quasi-related. The Kurt Russell movie from... Who directed it? The guy who directed like all those Resident Evil movies and stuff. I had that dude. Oh, Paul W. S. Anderson or yeah, whatever. I think he did oh it. no, I hate Paul W. S. Anderson. The guy who did Mortal <laughs> Kombat movies and then the uh, the uh, the Three Musketeers and Resident Evil movies. Ugh. And Soldier's probably his favorite. I mean, his favorite, his best, I think. And it's not necessarily a very good movie, but it's a better movie than any of those movies. And but it's it's sort of a similar thing. You have the soldier. He's essentially a replicant, but it's not really officially like a sequel kind of thing. Um, it is based on, of course, do androids dream of electric sheep by Philip K. Dick. As a kid, I wanted to read this book and I could not find it because I thought the title was do androids dream of electric sleep. <laughs> so I would not I couldn't find the book because I didn't know what the correct title was. But do androids dream of electric sheep? The book is very different. It's kind of more inspired by – there are some some elements that are the same, like the Voight-Comp test sequences are the same. I haven't read the book recently, but it's pretty dramatically different. There's a lot of different things, and we'll touch on some of those things. It is produced by Michael Dealey. The director of photography is Jordan Cronenworth. Uh, production designer Lawrence G. Paul. Douglas Trumbull did special effects photography. There's other guys who did the special effects of photography that I don't have listed, but this is the kind of film where those people deserve – a lot of credit for an absolutely spectacular piece of art, just visually a stunning, stunning film. Uh, Sid Mead, one of the designers who was a futurist uh, who was brought in to do a lot of design. He's one of those things where they talk about the, why this movie went over budget. He was like paid something absurd, like $1,500 a day or something. I that my number might be wrong, but this is in, you know, not the early 1980s. Yeah. And, he wasn't originally part to be part of the thing. And then it's like an additional expense to hire this guy to think about the future. And he would do all these crazy details. Like he would design a parking meter that would electrocute the person that if they ran their meter too long, it's something you cannot see in the film, but it's actually there in the background. There's this like behind the scenes video where he's explaining it. And it's like, you know, the 50th level of depth in this shot that you would never <laughs> see. But that's why the the world is so real, because that's what they put into it. Um, it's starring, of course, Harrison Ford as Rick Deckard, Rutger Hauer as Roy Batty, Sean Young as Rachel, Edward James almost as Gaff. And so some well, of the... I did not even know. Cause I, 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 over the years, like, I've seen Blade Runner, I think, three times. This is my third watch. And I loved the first time when I was younger. And then I saw it again, like in college, and I loved it again. And I just haven't watched it since then. And then, like, but I always heard, like, oh, Edward J, or you know, Edward, you know, almost is in this movie. And I'm like, what? Where? And then I watched <laughs> it today, and I was like, where the hell is he? And then I went on IMDb, and I was like, oh snap! God, that guy was so skinny back then. Like, okay. I don't he think really he looks anything like him. So young. And he's so, but he's, it's, he's so like lost in that world that he seems like they got this guy from the future that is Blade Runner and plucked him in this movie more than anybody else in the movie. He seems like otherworldly. Yeah. He's he's not meant to be an android. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So the film is called Blade Runner, but there's no Blade Runner. uh, Harrison Ford is a Blade Runner. There's no Blade Runner in the novel. It's from a William S. Burroughs 
book, I believe. And so they had to get the rights to that, not that book, but that title to use that title for the movie. <laughs> so they went through different titles. It was going to be Android at one point. Um, in the book, the androids are actually called Andes, and the, uh, which then became replicants in the film. So they went for something that was kind of different. Also at that time, you have to think uh, the droids in Star Wars. So if you have a droid, android, they, you know, it's kind of the Star Wars droids or the cutesy thing. They wouldn't want to go that direction. At one point it was called Mechanismo. Uh, dangerous days. So they went through all these different titles before they God, settled those, on Blade those Runner. Are all terrible. I don't, I don't even think Blade Runner is even that good. Why but Blade Runner, it like it uh, says something. <laughs> dangerous days is like uh, actually the title of a documentary yeah, yeah, that yeah. goes over the production of the of the movie, and it's like four hours long, but it's great. It like goes into really big detail, yeah, like great yeah. detail. Every detail you could want about, about production, and so I highly recommend it. Uh, I need to watch you know, that. Not, Good. <laughs> so the film, uh, it was a budget of $28 million and it went over budget. That, well, that I'm sure that'll come up. It opened <laughs> at only $6 million. It was one of those movies. It opened huge. And at the time, it did not have good word of mouth. It just dropped yeah. off that weekend and it was dead. It only made $33 million in the United States and $41 million internationally. So like because now when you we think made about money, it, like, a so. movie, yeah, a movie that uh, – uh, like that, that kind of big sci-fi movie, though, you would always expect, oh, it's going to have this big international side. And it just, I mean, made virtually nothing internationally. But you have to consider it. I would also think about the year of 1982, of all the things that came out that year. Like spe- Specifically, the big one was E.T. that came out before that. E.T., Star Trek, uh, you know, Wrath of Khan, or was it, or was it Search for Spock? It and was then Wrath of Khan. Wrath of, Wrath of Khan. Khan. You have uh, Tron, 1982. You also have The Thing, right? 1982? The Thing came out yeah, the same the weekend. Yeah, The Thing. I mean... Poltergeist. Thing and E.T., right? Rocky Three came out that summer. I mean... <laughs> don't they consider 1982 as the best year for film still, right? I thought. I... It's 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 up there for sure. I mean, just listen to those movies. The um, yeah. Fast Times at Ridgemont High was also, and these are summer movies we're talking yeah. about here. Summer movies specifically, but really that summer was very much dominated by ET. So even the other movies that did well, like the same weekend. Think about that. You have the thing, and uh, that's the episode we should do to connect these together in the future. The <laughs> thing and Blade Runner the same uh, weekend. That was June twenty fifth. ET came out June eleventh, and they both got steamrolled by ET. Yeah, it was just that momentum that just carried. It became ET at that time became the highest grossing movie ever. And I hate ET so much. I love ET. I love I, ET. I think it's just it's a very different. It's a romantic, idealized childhood kind of movie. Hmm. But and it's and it's the best of that kind of movie. But it's I mean absolutely. it's not Blade Runner. Are you are, but, you, are you saying that Mac and Me is worse than ET? <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> Mac and Me, they took the okay movie that is ET and perfected it. Yeah, because of Paul <laughs> Rudd. Thank you, Paul Rudd. <laughs> Paul Rudd makes was, Mac and Me. And that Mac and Me, oh, there's man. like 20 minutes on was, just that that weird alien world and that that where they're trying to get in the ship. <laughs> I wish we were doing video right now. I we wish I had to that clip. And then it becomes a Burger like, King ad or a McDonald's ad. I kind of wish we were doing video so we could cut to that clip of that kid in the wheelchair <laughs> and then, you know, Matt coming out. And Ooh. then, and then yeah. just see Conan O'Brien's <laughs> face. <laughs> so, okay. So the film begins with uh, the opening shot, which is that Hades landscape shot. And it's just the most magnificent. I, I, watching it again, I thought this is up there with Star Wars with an opening shot that's just like a game-changing kind of shot 
And it's kind of funny because this is one of the last truly great optical effects films. And it from here, like not too long after that, a few years later, you get like the last Starfighter, which is you know the first movie that brought in digital effects. There were some other digital effects, even Wrath of Khan. Actually, Wait, I thought Tron dig- was the first one in a major. That wasn't scale, actually like there scale. was digital effects in the scene, but it was it was almost more animation than it was digital. That makes it's sense. Diff- yeah, but uh, actually, Wrath of Khan, which did come out this summer, had the first extended digital scene, which is the Genesis planet sequence. Like the, not the, like whenever it shows the, the example, whenever they, they watch the video that uh, Carol Marcus did, that was actually done by Ellen. That's all digital. So that was the same summer, which is really interesting to think where you have this movie, which is in Tron too. With these are movies. Yeah. So this is where it's going. And this is like, well, we're going to have the last totally awesome version of this, but that Haiti shot, before we even talk about the the film, let's talk about that. Like just the, or like let's talk before we get into characters and things like that. Let's talk a little bit about the look and the sort of special effects of this film. Paul. Oh, I just um, <laughs> no, I just I, I, I feel like see Paul's funny. face. We're on we're on uh, video chat, even though you guys are just hearing us. I can just see Paul's face, so he was just yeah, go. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of wandering off. Yeah. Um, I uh, I really actually am impressed with. Obviously, all the models are amazing. All the model work is amazing. But I, re- I was really impressed with the matte paintings. How they really like—they're so immersive. And I'm, I was watching it like I, I bought a new TV. It's like 4K. It's like a, a nice TV. And like I was watching it, and and uh, like there's nothing that kind of gives it away. That's a matte painting. Like it's so immersive and so like. Um, I don't know, it's just so great. And I, I think in, in a lot of ways more convincing than a lot of CGI nowadays. Mm. And uh, so it kind of really brings you into that world. And I just like the fact that, like, you know, just the whole concept of, like, this dystopian future, you know, that, that 1982 kind of predicted. And it looks like... Um, the, the funny thing is, actually, it's, it, it looks better than the, the future now. <laughs> like, what <laughs> we're dealing with now, it's actually more optimistic than the future that actually uh, came to be. I mean, there's so, no snow in L.A., but otherwise it's accurate. Yeah, and it never rains <laughs> here either. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I just I think the special effects are, like, phenomenal. I think they just, like, they really immerse you into the world in a way that I think few movies know how to do um, with even more... Uh, more resources and and more, like it's just it surprisingly holds up well for a movie that's like forty years old with the special effects. Thirty years. Uh, yeah. What was it? It's thirty-eight years old. Just that's a distinction. Thirty-eight. Oh I'm, yeah, but four. But, I'm as yeah. old as this movie. <laughs> and I think that's part of what what kind of like helps sustain. I mean, there's so many things, but I think that's kind of what holds it up as a classic. Is that the special effects really engrossing the world, and they don't like take you out of it. Like if you look at like the like the you know the Mummy Returns, and you see the the rock, it's like ugh, that's you know 2004 CGI that looks really bad. But you look at the special effects in this movie, and it's like wow, this is like well really well done, and and it's it like it captures that cityscape really well. So it always feels like in this movie the special effects it's like for the sake of the the story and the tone and the mood of the story as opposed to some sort of big gimmicky sequence like that rock scene where it's like oh you're being attacked by a scorpion creature it's 
Yeah. Like it opens with that shot of, you know, they call it the Hades landscape and you see those fire coming up and then you get that Vangeli score, that weird music that just makes it otherworldly. And it really immerses you in that world. And then you get the, the spinner coming in and it cuts to the eye and you're in the feel of that world before you're in that world, before yeah. you meet a character, before the story really begins. So whether or not you like the story, follow the story, you fe- you're feeling it, you're experiencing it. And it's cool that it's special effects that achieve that as opposed to um, special effects to do something sort of gimmicky and you know extravagant, and which is kind I of the definition of movies. Should always, special effects should always be in service to the story. And when you look at what, you know, like that hellscape, you realize like, hey, this is dystopia. Oh, I can like this is the technology that we're looking at, the, the spinners flying, these flying cars. Um, and when you look at the close up of the eye, you realize like, OK, this is a, uh, you know, this movie's more existential than, yeah. than you know, and sci fi. And like so it says so much in like, I don't know, what is that, a minute? It's like in, in a minute, it says so much about the movie and what like it sets the tone for a lot of what's going to happen in, in, you know, in the next two hours. Yeah. So, well, what do you think, Tyler? I love this film. I love the look of it. Um, I agree with you both that like, you know, watching it again, since it's been, um, you know, like probably 10 years since I've seen this film, just, just understanding those world and like the realities and everything like that. I, I just got it instantly. It, it's a gorgeous looking film. And although I do love, CG like I love I, I love practical effect and I love CG kind of like the same I don't mind a CG you know practical effects is always going to have like a warm place in my heart but then I also like really love you know things like with CG like they really wanted Gollum to be practical effects I am very happy we didn't have Gollum as practical effects I'm very happy with the CG Gollum this movie is just so awesome the billboards the everything I mean just how Every, not billboards, but you know what I'm talking about, like how they were able to do all that thing before, like de- te- that technology even existed, is phenomenal and awesome, and it's just, it's just, it's just so great. Especially seeing, I haven't seen that four hour long documentary, but I have seen a lot of other documentaries and a lot of other YouTube videos of the making of Blade Runner, and we learned some also when I was studying um, radio, television, and film in college. And we got to see some of the behind the scenes stuff. They're talking about that stuff, and it's 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 amazing. And like, and you see it. You see like this this amount this amount of love into trying to get into this world where Ridley Scott used to be so good at it. And I don't know what happened, but he used to be so good at this. Where like with with Alien and with this, and you know, and a few other films as well. But where now he just kind of loses it. Like you know, with Prometheus. And you know, and Alien Covenant. Um, it's uh, uh, I love this film. I don't know how this might like. It's great. I think, I think the story is great. Um, you know, it's I I don't get bored in this film because there's just so much going on and so many internal questions that you're having with as it as it keeps going as well. So one thing I wanted to point out is that I really like. What I really like about this movie is that it's very thoughtful and that in a way that they predicted that advertisements would be very intrusive in the way it is in this world. And, you know, back in 1982, there were advertisements, but they weren't like all over the place in the way that it is predicted in this world. And it's something that like because they were very thoughtful, they pointed out this this detail, like this, this detail that actually became true yeah. in our time. Like 
advertisements are everywhere. You go on your computer, there's like pop-ups. You know, like you see advertisements all over the place, whether it's subtle or not. Every app and everything, and, Facebook, Twitter, and I mean everything. Exactly. And so I, I appreciate the fact that it, it made these thoughtful predictions that eventually became true because they had the foresight to, to make that those predictions, such as the advertisements. And these things really help you engross you in the world and make you like it just convinces you that you're you know in this world yeah and you're immersed into it can i back or kind of balance off of that? like like this is one of those sci-fi movies that don't go so crazy with you know with what their predictions are in the very near future like most of it maybe not you know flying cars and stuff but like you know, yet. I mean, we don't know yet. I mean, well, uh, yeah, wasn't like a couple months ago? This this takes place in 2020, right? Yeah, no, no, 19, 2019, November. It was last November. November. Oh, last November. <laughs> last but November. Yeah. Oh, sorry. We, so, yeah, so we don't have flying cars, but like, I mean, it, but there's a lot of things like the advertising, um, you know, um, how certain companies, I mean, I, it's called out a lot of companies, a lot of tech companies as to um as well like, what's that yeah how corporations i mean the, in this world the corporations make replicants it's some kind of technology it's just you know in our world they make phones and computers and saying, whatever like ai the, and stuff but yeah. yeah the technology yeah but that how that company <laughs> runs the world essentially yeah and you know what i, I really like and this is kind of a subtle thing but i know it, it's, it's funny how you, like everybody this it's kind of in their own little bubble like they're not really, yeah. uh, you know, interacting with Deckard in any way when he's like chasing after Zora in the in the streets. Like they're all kind of in their own little bubble, kind of doing their own thing. And it's like it's interesting that uh, I know it's like a Black Mirror episode. That. Sorry, what was that? <laughs> I know it's yeah, like a no, black, it's like a Black Mirror episode. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like it's just it's that show. That show. Like this technology. movie totally stole that show that came 30 years later. <laughs> yeah. But the realize like how, how how technology can be like very isolating and, and and alienating for other people and so it's it's interesting that they they were able to you know focus on that very um again uh you know and that attention to detail and that thoughtfulness. So. And I think that gets into the theme of the movie, which is what it is to be human and empathy in yeah. particular. The Voight-Kampff yeah. test that they, they give the replicants, which is kind of how the, the film starts, uh, sort of segueing into the actual movie <laughs> a little bit, is <laughs> you have the, the character of Holden, who is actually Harrison Ford's stand-in as well, I believe. The actor played that character, gets shot by Leon, one of the replicants, and he's testing him with these bizarre questions. He's asking him about a turtle in the desert. And these the, the Voight-Kampff stuff is the stuff that, at least as far as I remember, it's been a while, but it's most like the book. Most mm. like the novel, those sequences, because a lot of things changed. But it, it's it's and it's much more prevalent in the book that it tests for empathy because the idea is the replicants don't have empathy naturally, but can they develop it? Like the idea is, can they develop the human emotions? And what you have is though a world full of humans without human emotion. Deckard barely yeah. has emotion, and these replicants have more, and it draws out the human in him questions of his humanity aside for the moment. And it, that's really interesting to think. Cause I, I, I was never intelligent enough to like Paul right there to connect the way that the advertising, the technology of that world oppresses and pulls, takes our humanity away. 
you know, like, is it Facebook today? It's taking our humanity away in the yeah. same sort of oppressive way where it controls us. And it not, it doesn't control us, but it sort of maybe puts us into a tunnel of thought in the same way so that we're walking down this thing and we don't see these things going on around us. It's yeah. depressing myself. I mean, no, you're <laughs> no, just, it, it, the thing is that it answers a lot. It, like, make comments on society in very meaningful ways that, you know, it, like, asks the questions before – we ask the questions, you know, like it's, yeah. it's so I, I just appreciate the thoughtfulness in that and, and being like being able to predict these things that are so prevalent in our society nowadays. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, what we, um, with Kowalski, I really appreciate how like he does start sweating and he is empathetic to like the, the tortoise, whereas like Deli's baking in the sun and you see him like react yeah. And they asked him questions about his mother, and and like it, it, you see how like that facade of being like, even though he's a replicate, like he he has that sense of, sense of empathy, and it's like they're targeting these replicants um, for being human, and yeah. and which is kind of an interesting like dynamic in, in this movie. So yeah, it's just like we we kind of talked about in a personal conversation before we started this that idea of otherness. They look like humans, but we determined that they're not because they're made and they're other and therefore they're dangerous and they must be killed. You know, that little title at the beginning where it's yeah. it's not considered murder or kill, whatever. It's considered retirement. It's yeah. dehumanizing some some I'll say something, someone that wants to be human really quickly before I forget this, though, the, the effects thing I wanted to say it was uh, I know <laughs> like quite a jump here, but I, I totally oh, don't want to forget it. Before we it's get a free 80, 80 conversation. No, we have rules and strict structures here. <laughs> that's, that's my thing, as we always joke, is the writer guy. Like, I'm the structure guy. <laughs> but in life, I'm not. <laughs> just in writing. So, but uh, the visual effects, it was just a nightmare to create uh, because it's optical effects. So they had to run the film up to, like, 20 times in the camera over and over and over again. And there was times where they would just shred the film. But the big payoff was... Philip K. Dick actually, who actually read an early draft of the script and hated it, saw the like 10 minutes of their best stuff and he was blown away. There was something like he turned around and said something about how like you had you captured the world of my head and he actually, you know, asked them to run into the, the reel again. And that's like they joke that's the biggest compliment. That was in that Dangerous Days documentary, actually, Paul mentioned. That's where I learned that <laughs> nugget. But he it's really cool that he got to see like a film version, even, you know, the story aside, because the story does go in different ways, but the world they created was the world that he felt was there. And it's very different because the, the book's set in San Francisco. There's, it's very, there's a lot of different stuff going on, but it's cool that he felt it captured that. And it really interesting thing that I discovered in researching this. So he passed away in Santa Ana, California, the city I currently live in. And he died on March 2nd. This movie was released in June 1982, June 25th, 1982. He died on March 2nd, 1982. That was the day I was born. Whoa, the exact day weird. I was born. <laughs> so as I'm researching this, I'm like, oh, that's weird. And then I look, I'm like, Santa Ana, California? Because I've only lived here for a very short time, and I'm not going to live here much longer. So for the brief window I'm living in Santa Ana, which will be a total of like eight, nine months, it is – 
just connecting me to, to Philip K. Dick and Blade Runner in a very world way. That's why I wanted to like <laughs> use the special effects part because it was in my notes that way. But it was just very bizarre when I noticed that. I'm like, oh my gosh, he died on my birthday. My birthday, I mean the day of my birth. You're the and reincarnate. Then, <laughs> yeah, apparently. Oh, no. I, I, would love, I would be honored to be. Um, and I don't even think he's the greatest writer in the world. I think – uh, if you read his writing, sometimes it's like, okay, but it's like revolutionary in its thought and the ideas it puts forward. Like as a writer, he's not, he's not George R. R. Martin or, you know, some very literary sort of giant. That's the, you know, in the fantasy world, he's the first. The, the, he definitely uh, has a lot of great ideas, but he hasn't really elaborated on them as much as he could have. And I think that's why this movie is so great is because he took they took those great ideas and elaborated and made it like something on its own. And so yeah, because he's not like one who's very descriptive of worlds and things like that. So when he says, "Well, you got my world," the world isn't necessarily there's details of it here and there, but it's not thoroughly described the, the way you see it in Blade Runner, at least. So so the the, thing, go ahead. Oh, I would say the world building in this movie is probably every bit as good as or better than star wars in my opinion and i know that's saying a lot but it's like every time i watch this movie i'm I'm fully immersed like my full attention is on this movie in every single detail and every even like just random things in the background like even the timing of that dragon with the tongue like everything i'm just like my whole attention's like even the city speak you know it's like it's a mixture of like Japanese and like I think Turkish and like all these different languages mixed together, like and Hungarian just like and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, and that was one of those things. The city speak was really an Edward James almost like creation. It was just something that was mentioned in the script, kind of thing that they would use the city speak, and I think it might also be in the novel. But he made it a real thing. He defined yeah. what it was. Like it was yeah. just we need well something here, and he actually made it. Like in so he like. It's like his version of Klingon or something. So uh, speaking of that's the perfect character. So he he goes and he brings Deckard back. So Deckard is retired and he's brought back in sort of that one last job. And he goes to the Tyrell Corporation, which is another amazing visual effects shot yeah. of that crazy pyramid. Just this brilliant, amazing, beautiful thing, that pyramid they fly into. And uh, he meets Rachel he performs the test. There's also a little nugget that connects to the books here. There's when she when they see the owl and he, she asks about the owl. He asks about the owl. Is it real? And she says, "Of course it isn't." That was like a big thing in the books that people would really, really. If you had a live, actual, real, living animal, it showed your status because most animals were dead or extinct. So most people had oh wow fake replicant animals. The like. Uh, that's what the electric sheep is. It's a ro- it's a android sheep that he keeps on the roof of his house because he wants to get like a real one instead. Yeah. Because his neighbor had like a cow or something, and then and the cow was better than his sheep. And he like if it was real, it was better. It was a very very bizarre aspect of it. But that's how they showed their status because it was such a rare thing. These creatures were rare, so it was like a little call to the books in a different way that you can see there's uh the, the in the book the environmental issue is a little bit more obvious although the pollution of the world makes it you aware of it but yeah. you, it's not sort of discussed as it is in the book so he meets rachel he tests her and rachel is kind of the the character that then sort of throughout the film is how we question that aspect of humanity because it she it turns out she is a replicant but she does not know she is a replicant and then after Deckard performs his test, she finds out and she does still does not believe it. 
Yeah. Like that's a really the interesting thing. So what do you guys think about that? Like what it like it's a very powerful idea. Like you were not what you thought you were. Well, I like the idea that she has memories of Terrell's like niece, I think it was. And so a lot of her like identity is based off of the memories of another. Yeah. So like it's almost like her humanity's borrowed in a way. And uh but it's interesting that like, you know, as far as ourselves we're so convinced that we're human based off of our memories and like our experiences and to kind of turn that on its head it, it, you know uh, i can't imagine what that's like to to be in that situation to realize like you're not human um and uh you know like what kind it, of parallel could you like you know i'm obviously we it's impossible we can't say no you're not human paul but you're not this or what what would it be that that revelation that you could relate to. I, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm honestly drawing a blank, but something that would about your identity that you thought, or maybe your personal history or family history that could kind of shock you and break you in that way. I think that's where, that's where whatever that is, is, is almost kind of irrelevant, but that's where the movie gets that deeper power because it's something that would just change your world and yeah. it changes her world. It totally yeah. destroys her world. And, and and you have to think like, are we all just a product of our memories, like, and our experiences? Is that is that what we're made of, or are we, are we something more than that? Yeah, you know. And so, you have to think like, what? As for Rachel, like, what part of her is Terrell's niece, and what part of her is her own experiences and her own perceptions, and you know, like, what what is the humanity that is formed based on the combination of the, of these two things? So. I don't know. It just it asks a lot of interesting questions that yeah. that uh, you know you don't really have an answer to actually. But it's just like yeah, <laughs> yeah, it really makes you think about like, well, you know, what is what is humanity like? It, you know, when we, I mean, we kind of get like, answers in the sequel in twenty forty nine, kinda. Um, in that way that it's like more questions. That's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it asks yeah. like another question. Like, <laughs> In a way, and so and I, th- I appreciate that. By the way, I know we'll do a podcast about twenty forty nine, but I appreciate that it doesn't answer all those questions. That it just asks more questions, and it doesn't like. I, I like the fact that it's ambiguous. You know, it, it's everybody looks at this movie in a different way, and they interpret it in, th- in a different way, and it's kind of flavored by their own perceptions. And I feel like, like, not many movies do that. A lot of movies kind of give the answers to you. And kind of hand, hold your hand through everything, and this one doesn't, and it's something I really appreciate. And, and and because of that, it's something I always like revisit because it just asks these really interesting questions and and has these interesting ideas that I feel are very profound, especially for you know like a summer blockbuster, you know. Yeah, which I guess when you know upon that discussion, I can see why it didn't make more money than ET. Uh, it's <laughs> like sometimes you know, like oh, this movie's great, but I don't think I want to go be depressed right now um, or challenged. <laughs> yeah, As my, and I love ET. I, I'll share that, but it's definitely not a movie that's going to challenge your humanity. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, so, it, it doesn't have as much appeal as like as ET, where it's like a kid, you know. A, yeah, a, yeah. a movie about two kids finding an alien as opposed to whatever the hell this movie is. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so it's also interesting, though, because then Rachel is then, in a strange way, the most human character. And the replicants are all the most human character because yeah. they're the ones 
who are fighting for their humanity that others say they don't have or shouldn't have. They're fighting to be just alive. They just want to exist. I mean, specifically, one of the things the film talks about, they have they have that four-year built-in lifespan. So they are essentially trying to find out if there's a way they could live longer, if there's a way that they could switch it off, whatever have you, if there's a way that around that. But everyone else is just like Paul said, just kind of shuffling through a crowded street where these are the only people in this world who seem to have a real mission. Hmm. And, you know, uh, the one thing I noticed about that whole four-year um, lifespan, I like how Terrell – I know this is maybe going a little bit ahead of myself, but when Roy Batty talks to Terrell, um, Terrell mentions it as a as a uh, limit of the technology, that they couldn't – they're not able to extend his life more than four years, um, whereas I forgot who it was – Maybe Sebastian or maybe the the guy with the eyes who said um, that that's Hannibal too. Yeah, that they said that the four year uh, lifespan was a choice. They set that limitation. So I just like that discrepancy between what's projected out there as you know, like the corporate um, understanding, and then what's really the intention of the creator that they couldn't, they want to give more life, but they can't It's just the four years yeah. because of technological limitations. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a thing. I'm kidding. I'm joking. Yeah. I'm joking. Yeah. I'm <laughs> no, I'll say this. The funny thing was like, as, as you're saying that I'm like reading in my notes, just like glancing through them. And I looked down and said, zoom in enhance cliche, but is this the first time? Because it's their part where so one of the things Harrison Ford wanted to Enhanced. do was forty six through forty eight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like that scene. Dro- there, there are a few things in this movie that drives me up the wall. Like, but at the same time, that's I don't think before this, it, if in nineteen eighty two, that was revolutionary. Oh, no, no, idea. But that's what I was going to talk about. There was like this. Go ahead. There was like an alarm of like the person's voice that was just so loud and just went on forever of the same person. I forgot what they were saying, but it was like, stop, stop, stop for like 45 fucking seconds. And I was like, Oh my God, can this stop? <laughs> and like, That's world building. According to Paul, I know it's world building. <laughs> no, 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 no. I understand. Wait, but when does this happen? Somebody says stop. For 45 no, no, no. no. I, I don't think it's, a st- I don't think it's stop, but the, there is a voice. Like an alarm or something like that. Something. I feel like I, I, the, the, the what he's saying is there. I, I'm feeling it, Tyler. Where it's yeah, like, where are? like the tempo you had was right. Where it's like yeah. some warning, like someone, like yeah, during I, one of the. Oh, but it, like, but it's scene. like 45 seconds it. long, which is really long for a film, and it like it really bugged me, and I was like, okay, I need to fast forward. Like, but I, but I didn't want to though. Oh, it's, <laughs> as far as the pacing, it kind of hurts the pacing of the yeah. movie. You think? No, I, I, I was saying some things I didn't like about the film. I love this film, um, but there are some things like that where I was just like, oh my god, I don't want to hear an alarm for 40 or something for 45 seconds like that. <laughs> That's one of the things, though, that I wanted to mention, sort of segueing, is like using that zoom and enhance technology cliche, which first time probably it's been done. That is the one part of the film that's kind of boring, and it's interesting because Harrison Ford said, oh, he's a detective. We need to see him being a detective. It's like, not maybe as much as you show it. <laughs> yeah, he's going through a room. He's looking at he's the photographs. He's not Batman. Like I want to see. He's looking through like, them, wanna... and then he's looking at them, and like it's just it. It's boring. That part does get boring. I... And, then, and and also, how the hell did he get that angle of that picture? 
Like, there was no way that that, that would have gotten that, A, that clear, and two, like, it wasn't even in the picture, like, at all, when he finally found that woman. <laughs> and I've always wondered with the pictures, where did they come from? Well, oh, it, so when they were at the apartment, they were, uh, what, uh, Leon's apartment? Yeah. Um, he was looking through all the stuff, and he found a drawer, and looking through the drawer, and under the clothes, they had all these pictures. No, I know where he finds them, but where then, did... How did Leon and the and, and Roy get the picture? I think they took him because it was oh. like maybe they were just maybe he was infatuated by photo, by photographs or something. Oh yeah, I don't know. That's one of the things that I mean, there was never. They're I androids. The physical, where, I understand the physical act of it. Where they but, came from, they probably don't have cameras. Maybe or something. I don't know. You know, or maybe because, it's just internally, or they're able to print it out of their. Ear? I don't fucking know. <laughs> no, I, mean, I yeah. understand the because I, I understand the theme of like that because w- photographs and things, especially then a physical photograph. Less so now, photographs are much more disposable with everything being digital. Yeah. Then it was a much more meaningful thing to have a picture of something like that because it was more rare. So I understand the power of that, but is it just they were? Maybe that's just it. That's they were just taking pictures of each other hanging out. I guess, and I'm I'm overthinking it. <laughs> well, I think of it this way. What one thing I notice is that every time, like you can tell what kind of who's a replicant based on how when they enter the room, they're very curious and they always like kind of move their head in a certain way, like almost like a. I don't know they move their head in a certain way, and they're very like like uh, when they're um, you know they they talk to the guy with the eyes, and um, Leon puts his hand in that bowl with the eyes. And touches it, and he's like, "No, it's cold. Don't touch it." Uh, and then the same with like um, uh, Pris. Oh yeah, when she uh, puts in that boiling eggs, right? Yeah, yeah, boiling yeah, eggs yeah, yeah. Like, with uh, Sebastian. And then yeah. she like looks at the telescope and like looks at all the different dolls around her. Like they're very curious in the way they you know handle everything. So I mean, I could imagine that at some point they got a camera and they took pictures because they're curious about how these things work or and also like we got to understand they're essentially they're slaves they're created to be slaves roy was what he was like a combat one pris was a pleasure model they were they they were out there and there's a little bit and roy touches on it a teeny bit in his his final speech at the end some of the things that he's done like seeing kind of thing but they they serve this purpose they were created did this thing and now they just want to be people and so they're seeing this world so every detail of you know earth of quote our world would just be fascinating to them because it's things they probably dreamed about if and that's that kind of getting back to the title of the book do androids dream of electric sheep yeah would they dream about that could they dream about that can they dream about wanting something about having a desire is that even a possibility and therefore does that make them human so that's where the power of the movie comes in and the thing that always really like I thought was very profound is that you know as as replicants and where they were off world they've seen the worst of humanity like they've seen war and you know like being taken advantage of sexually and you know all, like the worst of humanity yet they still want to become human and and have that freedom and and the, the ability to live longer so I find that very profound that like even though they've seen the worst they're still very optimistic and, and see the potential in humanity and want to be human. Yeah. Absolutely. 
Totally powerful stuff. So let's let's jump into a different gear and talk about. Uh, we all watched the final cut, but I also just watched one of the other cuts that had the notor- notorious uh, voiceover narration. It's so. so what bad. are your thoughts on the narration? I hate it, but I also know people. If if anybody listened to um, our bonus episode where we talked about the Snyder cut, the Ghostbusters, Paul Feig cut, and the David Ayer cut of Suicide Squad. Um, some of the panelists on there, like Yehudi, Mike, and all of them grew up with the narration and love it still. And when I saw it, oh my god, it's so bad. And it honestly, it distracts it, and it detracts your, uh, you from being, uh, for me at least, in my experiences, that narration like takes me away from the world and takes me away from understanding, as opposed to like kind of, kind of soaking it in and understanding it. As a, it kind of creates a barrier. Totally. Paul, what do you think? We've we actually discussed this recently, so I know what you think, but tell the rest uh, of the world. Yeah, no, I totally, uh, I hate it. Um, my first, my, my first, uh, the first time I saw Blade Run, I saw the director's cut, and it was for a film class about, you know, sci-fi. And uh, so our homework was actually to watch Blade Runner, and I've never seen it before. This was back in college. And I saw it, and I was like, oh, this is an amazing film. Like, I really like this film. And uh, but it didn't really like resonate with me at first. And it's something that kind of grew on me over time. And it became like a movie I saw that I thought was interesting. And it became one of my favorite movies of all time. Like, I love this movie so much. And so I've done the same thing where I watched, you know, all the different versions of this movie, just out of curiosity and see how how it's different. Every time I go to the the theatrical cut, as soon as that narration starts, I like turn it off. I can't handle it. Yeah, and I tried like even today. I saw the final cut, and I was like, "Well, let me give let me give the the uh, the original cut, the theatrical theatrical cut, uh, a chance again." And I watched it, and I was like, "Yeah, I hated the hand holding of the world. It like took me out of the world, and I felt like the narration is like from Harrison Ford in 2019, like traveling back to the past and narrating this movie. Like it's like so phoned in." Like every, yeah. <laughs> the way he like, delivers everything, and it, it's really bizarre. And not only that, it's he like he just got off the set of a... the of the Star Wars holiday special, and it was just like, yeah, I gotta do. This. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> exactly, it's so bizarre. Kind and like, of, yeah. Uh, not only that, it's like there's uh, in the middle. He's talking to Brian, and uh, and then he mentions like a racial slur, and it's like, what? I don't. It just takes you out of the movie. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's one of those things where he says it about Brian. So he's like, he's one of those cops who would have called a black man, and then yeah. racial slur. And it's it, even though it's like trying to say about this one, it's like, whoa, even we, 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 okay, we get it, we get it. He's the different kind of guy. Like, do you need to go there, movie? Um, yeah. But uh, it's it was an interesting thing behind the scenes. So they had the first cut, which was like four hours long. And it didn't make sense. And they knew they needed a narration or something to help bring it together. So Ridley Scott was on board. There were early drafts of the script that involved narration. It was kind of in and out. Um, I think David Peebles wrote a draft of a narration. They brought in a different writer to to do it. His version was tossed. And then they brought in another writer who was like a TV writer who wrote like a lot of like TV type cop shows. So superficially, he would seem to be like that's why he's writing that. It's very like I'm a cop kind of thing. Like if the way yeah. the narration plays when he's explaining things and he's explaining things that 
you're seeing happen for the most part, or you don't necessarily need to accept. The one thing that I realized that I might kind of like explain is like, oh, when he says what the city speak is, like, oh, okay. But other than that, I'm like, everything I mean, else, yeah. it's just it's just a terrible narration. And so what it was is this is uh, something that behind the scenes. So there's these two guys, Jerry Paracino and Bud Yorkin. Uh, I might be saying the first Paracino. Yeah, Jerry Paracino and Bud Yorkin. They were producers on this. They were the financiers, right? So the, what happened with the movie was it was with a certain company. That company was basically bankrupt, lost funding. So they had to bring in other companies. So they brought in like the Lad Company and uh, I think Warner Brothers at the time. And they were going to bring in like seven, $8 million. Then Bud Yorkin and per, Peter Perian, Pericino brought in another seven, $8 million, right? So they could get to the total budget. Yeah. Those two guys though had a completion bond. So if they went over their budget, they would pay the budget, but that would then grant them control of the movie. So they would then get the power of the movie. At one point they actually fired Ridley Scott and he, did, but he did come back on the film. They, I had uh, zero idea they fired him. Yeah, I don't know if like if it was like he came back the next day or if he was like off a week, but he was taken off the movie very briefly, and they were gonna like we'll do it ourselves. But the the crew's like, well, we gotta finish this thing. And even with the narration, it was done without Ridley Scott. Without like they just went and did what they wanted to do to make it make sense. So it was the financier guys who, in a way, I mean they they the movie wouldn't have gotten made if they didn't come in. Yeah, but. They certainly like uh, there was like a story I heard that one of the guys, Bud Yorkin, was on the set and he's just like yelling. And they were like really critical of Ridley Scott because Ridley Scott would do an insane number of takes because there's all these different elements. And, and but it's, it's and, Ridley Scott. I mean, especially at that time. I mean, Alien had already come out. I mean, what else? is? But there? it's basically he's had Alien and, and, and one other movie that I don't even I can't even name. So he's not Ridley Scott. That oh, became, Dark Star. You know, I think it's Dark Star. No, Dark Star was um a duelist john carpenter alien oh yeah you're right you're right oh the duelist there you go so he he i mean he even though he did alien part of the problem was actually when they prepared this right they prepared it the way they prepared for alien anticipating it right and the original script of this movie was much smaller it was a much more intimate script it was almost like more of the much more the detective noir side of this film yeah. as opposed to the big thinking sci-fi part of this film and it became the big thinking sci-fi part when when Ridley Scott came on things changed and changed and changed and things got bigger and therefore more expensive and it just kind of got out of proportion because he was expecting like the same number of sort of shots that you're going to have prepared for with alien except for the fact that alien really is essentially that small contained movie you know other than a few big more dramatic setups it's very much corridors and small rooms and character piece it's different so that expectation it got blown up that's sort of where it shifted but that's really where that narration came from the even like Ridley Scott was on board and we talked about at the beginning of this though then it was I think 10 years later when the director's cut came out so my take on the narration I would be I thought I was one of those guys that I grew up with it I did grow up with it that was the first version I saw but now I've seen the final cut and the director's cut as many times probably as I've seen that version and now it's hard for me to watch the version where he where he narrates it's yeah. so jarring it's like I didn't remember it being this bad. I think I romanticized it because of the rest of the movie. It's kind of like when you love someone, 
and you ignore some flaws, like my wife. She, I love her, but she, I ignore oh, the many flaws oh, she has. No. Oh, oh you're going to fit us there. You no, that's a joke. Like, that's a joke. To us too. Like, is Judy listening to these? <laughs> Are you listening? I bet she is. She's just gonna and hit she, you. She's just gonna hit you in a couple weeks, like, and you're gonna have zero idea why. Yeah, well, she'll just start crying for no reason, or I'm gonna get <laughs> smacked in the face. We'll find out. Oh no, so. she'll smack you. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? Which is How dare you talk about me on the podcast? I like you, Paul's son of version a bitch. of Judy. Paul's oh. version of Judy is Mark Simpson. Yeah. <laughs> but homie, I can't even do it. <laughs> your version of Judy is, or your version of Mark Simpson is Bart Simpson. Good at a cow man. No, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do any of the Simpsons. I can't I don't know. I whatever. I no, can't do it. <laughs> Was that Ren and Stimpy? I don't know. Anymore. I don't know. Yeah, that um, it, it sounded more like a like a like a like a sixties like game show host. Uh, which sounds know. awesome. Which sounds awesome. Oh, God, <laughs> I hate game shows. Getting back into the film itself, so I want to talk about we we kind of already touched on. It. I think it's one of the key scenes, and we'll just kind of talk about a few more things as we sort of gear towards wrapping this up. One of the key scenes is when. Uh, Batty goes to Tyrell Corporation. So Pris and oh, Batty wait, wait. manipulate Can I say Sebastian. That I, 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 I love the guy who like designs their brains and everything like that. Like I, I should really like him and like who has like the we you know like all the other like uh, androids as well. Like I don't know yeah, why I, I, I really like his character and feel bad for him. Oh, he's the most human of the human characters for sure. Like yeah. he is the most sympathetic and sad he's 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 clearly if he's doing this he's clearly a genius but yet he's stuck on earth because all the the best people get to go to the other worlds and all the schlubs are stuck on earth but he is here because of he has it's called methuselah syndrome where he grows old yeah fast yeah he's only 21 i think it's always hilarious how like she's chris is hiding in trash like and she covers herself with all the trash like all the (laughs) newspaper and she just like pops out when he's like by his front door and he's like, uh, don't be afraid. And she runs off and like, I think, like she breaks, she breaks a window on a car or like a taxi or something. And I, and I think she actually broke that window. Oh, shit. That wasn't like a stunt glass. Yeah, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't, yeah, it and wasn't she, staged and she cut to be her broken. Hand, and that's why she like goes like this afterwards, like when she's walking back to Sebastian. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the thing about Sebastian is like, he has a good heart and he like takes her in because, you know, he sees that she's like possibly homeless or like, yeah. you know down on her luck um one thing that i thought was interesting is that actor um i think it's h emmett walsh i think his name is no no no, no. That, could... that's, that's a detective yeah that's a oh, detective. That's, what's the name of this uh the sebastian what's the actor's mm, name i don't know i will also say that james hong in this movie you know i always hmm. forget how old james hong is like especially around the like seeing him in movies like this and like he looks so old did you know the guy is 91 years old and he's working still today yeah. <laughs> did you know he's the Noodle Duck Dad in uh, Kung Oh, a thousand, a thousand percent did I know that. <laughs> yeah. Did, did, yeah, he's did, Noodle Duck Dad. Take everyone at home, take a drink. Kung Fu Panda. Yeah, I know. He had to throw in the Kung Fu Panda reference, just Tyler. So basically, all I'm going to say is that the actor uh, that plays J- uh, Sebastian, he actually does the voice of um, a character in Batman the Man- Animated Series that is, uh, he's like a tech guy that creates this thing called Hardak. That has like these like replicants almost like these like replicants of like Batman and Commissioner Gordon. Oh, well, William Sanderson. Oh yeah, William Sanderson. So 
Yeah, and so he plays a similar part in Batman the Animated Series, and I thought that was kind of interesting. Whenever I saw Batman the Animated Series, I like recognize his voice and connected to the, to this movie, and uh, I don't know, I kind of geek out over that. So. <laughs> so, and speaking of that lovely, wonderful character who gets killed by some replicants not too long after that, so they take him to the Tyrell Corporation. It's a powerful scene where. They go to the corporation and he's begging, pleading Batty for more life. And he says the the uh, Tyrell has the great line: "The light that burns twice as bright burns half as long." Because like it's it's crazy the scene where Tyrell is like just admiring Batty, the ability that he had to even get to him. It's all like almost like he respects it. He he, mm. I made this thing that is just the best that his, and and then he obviously kills him with that where he crushes his eyeballs into his head kind of thing in that really powerful moment and then it's kind of like that's where he it's weird because it's it's it, 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 it's another thing even though it's he's killing it's where he becomes even more human because he's he's so desperately frustrated and angry that the thing that he thought he could get he cannot get it's an impossibility he will never achieve this thing he is going to die it's inevitable. And he now knows that. I think what always is very interesting to me is how uh, he meant, uh, Sebastian mentions how Tyrell is like really great at chess, that he's a, um, you know, he, he's a, he's brilliant, you know, a, a genius. And, uh, you know, while they're in the elevator, they're like on loudspeaker and Roy's kind of playing chess through Sebastian, you know, kind of using him as a puppet in a way to play chess with Tyrell. And he beats him. And I think at that moment, he's like, wait a second, this is not Sebastian. Like, I know where Sebastian stands in terms of me. And he, like, respects Roy Batty because he was able to beat him in chess. And I think that, like, I think that's part of where, um, why he was so honest with him about that, you know, it was a a limitation of their technology that, that, that they can't extend more life to him, you know? That he like he's he almost like saw him as an equal, as somebody like, and he like acknowledged Roy Batty as some something that somebody that's or a replicant that's special, that's something that's you know even more than a replicant, and almost human, and uh, so I, I don't know I just really like that exchange between the two of them, and it reminds me a lot of, um, you know like how how uh, the, the Man meeting the creator. Um, I it kind of reminds me a lot of like Prometheus, where we're trying to meet a creator and a creator tr- tries to kill us. It's like this crazy horror story, and it's kind of the inverse of that, where our creation tries to meet us and then you know tries to kill us for you know giving it life basically. And so I, I just l- love that that thread in Ridley Scott. Like that story thread with both Prometheus and, and and Blade Runner, the the whole concept of like meeting creator, meeting your creation, um, and yeah, yeah, I just I thought that was interesting. I also love Prometheus, so yeah, no, I, I yeah, absolutely. And those movies are all set within the same like universe. They're all what? intentionally, yeah. They're Wayland Yutani is a company. Essentially, if you think about it. It's more it's more directly in some of the like Prometheus stuff where there's a reference to like Tyrell Corporation, like these background kind of things. 
But there are? The, I did not know the, that. The, you know how the, like Waylon Yutani is the big company in Alien? And the idea is the other big company is the Tyrell Corporation within that ginormous universe. Obviously, the Alien films come later in the timeline. So it's but that's how those corporations control the world and therefore the universe. That's crazy. It's actually yeah, in the Prometheus like Blu-ray, there's a reference in one of the special features to Terrell. And yeah. now he says, Oh, replicants like, flawed and uh I forgot what what's the um David, what is he called? Oh Michael just, Fassbender. Michael Yeah. No, yeah. but they're they're synthetics. They're, are they called androids? Just I androids I in think, Alien? I, I thought they were called but, I don't remember. But yeah, I know, but in, I know in Aliens, it. Bishop refers to it as being a synthetic, like yeah. a synthet, like you have a, a an android. Yeah. And in Aliens, even Ripley, I think, says android. So I think they're androids in the alien oh, okay. world. I think. So I, I I know I remember uh, looking at that, and he mentions how you know uh, Wayland Utani's like androids are far superior to the replicants, and you know that Terrell's making, and we're like what. What's the replicas Terrell's making are kind of amateurish. And I remember seeing that. I was like, oh, that's I like my geek brain was like freaking out. Would they said like, that? Wait, the wait, wait where is this? Where is that? It's in? like it's like in a special feature that they released. It's like on the DVDs and Blu-rays oh. and stuff. But it was actually released online. So it's probably on like YouTube or something, too. It was actually like stuff that they released like as promo before the film. It's um the stuff that is with what's the actor that was in Memento? His name is escaping me. Oh, Guy Pierce. Like Guy Pierce, yeah. Like oh, he Guy does Pierce. like a, a TED talk as oh, the character. In oh, yeah, I have seen that. So yeah, those, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. And there's like oh, a my... couple of those different types of things, and those are the kind of things that are like the the world building slash promotional materials that came out with Prometheus. So, because it's that in that thing in Prometheus where you know here we are getting off track again, where you never see him as a young man, he's always the, the old man, but in the like online thing, he's yeah. Guy Pierce's age. <laughs> yeah. I guess. So getting back to Blade Runner. Uh, I, 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 I had a question about Blade Runner. So how many worlds are there then that, that humans are in? Do they, do they even say in the film? I, I, I don't remember. It's just vaguely the off world colonies. They never mm, specify. Okay. And there is, uh, within, um, the 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 end speech that Roy Batty gives, he kind of mentions some of the things. The the movie version's much, much shorter than the actual script version was, so he mentions some of the things. Before we get to that, though, because that's actually the yeah. next thing I want to talk about, there's one thing I want to talk about, and then I want to get to the conclusion as we wrap this up. But what about the sex scene? The, the, the quote, love scene in this movie? God, it takes forever. It takes <laughs> forever. Oh. What but do you think? It's whatever. I mean... Tyler, go ahead. Uh, I, I just uh, we yeah, have, we really have creepy. we have sex dolls. I I would feel way less creepy with an android that's willing as opposed to a sex doll. I guess. But what about the strange violence of Harrison Ford in that scene? Oh yeah, that was actually that was absolutely weird. Where he stopped her and like that was kind of weird. But oh yeah, he pushed the door closed. But she seemed yeah, into it. It was weird. Of, like and then he like, says like, "Ask me to kiss you" and stuff like that. It's 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 a weird scene. Well, <laughs> I know, mean. I, 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 I will say, I mean, not not to like go so much into like sexuality and stuff like that, but there are clearly people who like being dominated <laughs> and being like that. Obviously, I don't think they know each other well enough, so I can't speak for them. But like, yeah, I mean, it was weird. It it made me feel uncomfortable. But also, I think any Ridley Scott sex scene or romance scenes. Um, he the man is a great director. He's just really not good at like love. Um, 
in my opinion. (laughs) So I mean, I I kind of the the love that Ripley had for her cat is real. (laughs) (laughs) So I mean, Um, yeah, it was it was a lot, and I didn't like it, and he was very uh, rough. But you know, hey, I mean, but if she wasn't, if the character was into it, then hey, I mean, then who am I to tell her that she that that she wants something wrong? You know, wrong. What do you think? I honestly understand the intention behind that. I think it's like just that scene is kind of poorly directed and, yeah. and out of place and creepy, honestly. Yeah. Really creepy. Um, so I think what he was trying to get at is at that point, he killed Zora and he killed, uh, or no, uh, actually, Leon got killed by Rachel. And he kind of looked at replicants as, you know, something to hunt, something that, you know, are not in any way resembling humans or like they don't have any kind of uh, autonomy. And by his, like by him interacting with Rachel, he's starting to see like the, that the humanity in them, that they're more, um, that there's more to them than just that. They're these automatons or, you know, there's more to them. There's like some humanity in them. And so I think that scene was trying to bridge the, like it was trying to, satisfy that character arc of Deckard seeing replicants as first as like Monsters uh, as sort yeah. of humans that, that they're not something that should be hunted that they're that they're actually human beings with feel like they're almost human with with feelings and things that uh, you know you should in a way respect and um, so I think that was kind of the bridge for that arc to get to the ending where he like empathizes with Roy and sees Roy as like, um, you know, like as human basically. Yeah. Um, so I think it's just a bridge of that. I think that is kind of like that scene is so creepy that it doesn't really get that point across. <laughs> and I think it kind of comes with like the direction, like it wasn't directed right. And even when like you watch the, the, the dangerous days documentary, they kind of didn't know how to handle that scene and it shows, you know, based on like what the best part of that scene turned out to be that it's like, they did not handle it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that part just kind of takes me out of the movie and I, I kind of forgive it because there's so much good things about the movie, like the beautiful imagery and like, even when he kills, um, Zora has a, there's like falling snow in that store display just like there's so much like great imagery in the in the in the uh... in that moment. That's a great moment after he kills her. It, it he's broken up by it. Like it's affected him. Like that's yeah. where he. I think. And you're like why what your your take on the scene or the intention of the scene I think is right because he's that that this the, this moment comes right after Zora. So he kills her. He's affected by that. He's that that's heavy on him. He now Rachel is added to his kill list. She's officially on the list at this point in the movie. So when they, you know, make love, he doesn't kill her, but he's also dehumanizing her. Yeah. Because he has to, 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 for, for himself, because I think he doesn't want to feel at that moment. Cause it, it, it's, it's hard to feel. It's too much to feel yeah. in, in one, like, I think, I don't know if it's in the narration version. It does mention that he's, divorced or something like you know like so there's some past that we don't know about so i think that's it so let's segue into the very end because we're probably running long because i'm hosting and we do when i host so 
jumping into the 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 conclusion so the 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 emotional climax the best part of the film just from filmmaking because no matter what like to get here the build of the film works to get you here emotionally experientially like you're here in this moment where then he goes to the Bradbury building at that point he's looking for Pris and um Batty are still there so he's going for those two and he first he fights and kills Pris and that great moment where she, you know, you mentioned Tyler, he's with Sebastian's all his weird toys and things. And she's hiding among them and he's trying to find her. And it's this great, like just the, the, the mood of it. It's, it's like everything in the movie, you just, you feel the environment in a way that affects you emotionally. So then he eventually dispatches her. And then Roy shows up for this great thing. Cause then it instantly becomes, cause the whole movie he's pursuing them but you know that Roy in particular is better than him. Roy would win any fight against them. He has to find another way to like, if, if, if Deckard is going to win, he has to somehow get an upper hand that he actually never gets, which is pretty awesome and powerful that then it becomes the hunter is chased for the last 10, 15 minutes of the movie. And he's just trying to get away. Like he break that great scene where he busts his head through the wall. And I don't even remember what he says. It's like this from a horror movie, but then, and then he breaks his fingers. Like when he's pulling him through the wall, like this, he's toying with him. Yeah. Just, yeah. just such a great. Scene. I love Roy Batty as a villain. I really do. I, I kind of think like you could kind of view this movie as Roy Batty is not really a villain in, in a way. And so, it, it's interesting that like you can view it through Roy's perspective and he wants to live longer than he, he's allowed to. And, and so you can kind of almost, you know, have the perspective that Deckard is the villain in this, in this movie. So, but I like the fact that like, he's such a well-developed character that you can really empathize with them. And like, you, you kind of understand uh, his journey and like why he wants to live longer. And, and, and he, I just think of it like I think of this movie that like you know Roy Batty and Rick are 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 like both leads like they're it's not really like one is a protagonist and the other is an antagonist like they're both kind of like uh like two sides of the same coin basically um and I I particularly love the part where he sees Pris on the ground and she's like dead and he's like mourning her. She, he's like touching her, and he's like he doesn't. It's almost like he doesn't understand that she's like gone. And he takes her blood and like he wipes it on her face as he's crying, and he puts it on almost like, as like war paint, you know. And he's like howling like a wolf, like like a lone wolf, like he's howling. And then he like chases after Decker through the through the house, through like man, that house is disgust. Like I didn't think the Bradbury building was like disgusting, but uh, I guess it is. <laughs> I don't know if like it's not actually like that, right? Like, no, no, it's <laughs> a lot nicer. Right? I don't know. I, I always I, thought that, like I, I was there actually. I think three months ago with my friend Sean and my girlfriend, and we, you know, it was oh. or before the whole, you know, three months before the uh, coronavirus. So I guess I think yeah, I was like in, it was in January or February. Whenever I changed my profile picture on Facebook, um, well, in the eighties, was it like? kind of dilapidated and they had it wasn't really dilapidated no i mean it was still in use at that time like there was like it's in in use now still yeah yeah yeah. oh okay but i mean like when they were filled yeah it was like 
I mean, you a can lot go of and stuff take pictures. Is there. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of, yeah, yeah. You can go down. Yeah, they, I mean, they still shoot a lot of stuff there. They always have. Just Blade yeah. Runner made it a different thing. Like, they, you know, wet the thing. They threw garbage all over the place. So one of the things they did was, which is, again, on that Dangerous Days documentary, they said how they did it was they actually threw cork down on the floor so that when you saw it, it looked like mud and debris, but it would actually absorb the water so that way they could, in the morning, sweep it up because they had to clean everything out by, you know, 9 a.m., whenever it is that the tenants come back to go into that building. So every night they're shooting there, there's a hard deadline where they got to get back out. Yeah. <laughs> Which it's is just great, crazy. It's a cool looking building. I really love it in there. It really, yeah, yeah. Um, I think like the only thing they did was on the outside, they added those weird pillars. Those are not really there. Those yeah. big, fat pillars. They also have a plaque on the building, too, about Blade Runner. So it's, it's oh, they cool. do? I didn't even see that. I've been down there, though. <laughs> How did I not see it? I don't know. Visit the Bradbury building if you're in Los Angeles and you're not quarantined by the time this comes out. Do it. It's <laughs> awesome. God willing. <laughs> um, but the, 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 the climax of the film, right, we have this great chase where the hunter, you know, becomes a hunted kind of thing. And Roy, in the end, when he could just easily finally kill Deckard, when he knows he's about to expire. Like, because there's scenes throughout the chase where he's kind of getting twitchy, Roy is, and, like, the, when he does the thing with his hand, and his hand clamps oh, yeah. up, and he, like, it's pokes the nail, the nail through it to, like, get it to open back up. Um, that, yeah, that's always a little, that moment. And But he starts to get twitchy, but he knows the end is near, the end is coming, and he makes that switch to then, he becomes human, really, because he's throughout that film, he's been the killer, if anything. Yeah. And he, but although there's there's a great moment where I think when he goes to Leon or he finds out about Leon, where he gets this weird, it's it's really cool because he gets emotional in a very childlike way. I, you know, little kids, my yeah. three year old daughter. There's times where she'll like do this like whimpery face thing when she's like trying not to be sad. And she is sad and she wants to like fight it off and she doesn't know how to handle her emotions as a three-year-old. And Roy is four, right, in this movie. Emotionally, he's a four-year-old. Even though functionally he's an adult, emotionally he's a four-year-old. So he doesn't know how to handle those emotions at that point. So he's literally learning how to do it. Yeah. You know, and I know my daughter, like, she hits me sometimes. She gets angry because that's all she knows to express an emotion sometimes. I love her. And Rudger Hauer is such a... God, he's such a good actor. He's amazing, just like, brilliant. Like he always is, no matter what what he's in. But like, especially in this film, now, like I would say, yeah, yeah. this is his. I think this is just his, his defining acting like moment. Absolutely, oh, yeah. he's really brilliant, and it's and he executes the best part of the movie. Right, they're they're on that rooftop. It's pouring rain. He gives the speech. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I've watched sea beams glitter in the near dark of the Tannenhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time, like tears in the rain. Time to die. So it's like perhaps the best little speech ever given in a film. It was one of those things where as a writer, it's really cool because it was apparently much, much longer. Like it was this really long speech that Rutger Hauer then just got a couple of those things to create a sense of something otherness the things you've seen without getting lost in it because that power of that last mo- the longer that speech is the less power that yeah ending has so he just brought it down and 
that la- that last line in particular, all those moments when we lost, like tears in the rain, that was Rutger Hauer's line. He came up with that line. Just unbelievably brilliant. Because even uh, there's like a, in that Dangerous Days documentary, again, as Paul said, there's a part where they talk about a table read they had with the script. And Rutger Hauer read the speech that David Peebles wrote for him, where it has some of those other things in it. And then he added that line and he looked at David Peebles and kind of like smirked at him. And like David Peebles was like, like nervous and like upset because he's a young writer at this point and he kind of felt threatened by it. But then he says he after, you know, when he watches the movie, he's like, I, I couldn't have wrote that. <laughs> it's just so, <laughs> just so perfect and brilliant. And it's like the perfect cap on everything. And I think it also shows why film is great. You know, we talk a lot about Ridley Scott. We talk about uh, Brett Howard. It's a collaboration of people being at their best to make something true, unique, and special. From the special effects people to Rutger Hauer in particular in the performance. And even Harrison Ford. Because he's kind of like just... I think Harrison Ford's amazing in this movie. No, he is. But I'm saying he, like, has a, he has a hard time closing his mouth in this movie, but he's great in this film. <laughs> because in this movie, it's a, it's, a, it's a challenging different role because he's not the charming guy. He's not Harrison Ford. He's not Indiana Jones. He is this stoic, emotionless person that then in the end learns how to be human by a someone who's not a human yeah i can't wait to dive into 2049 yeah i'm excited to and not now fortunately so (laughs) (laughs) next time we talk next time yeah i just on pomosis and i I think it's funny that he like he grabbed that pigeon that he's holding he had like he was holding a dove or whatever he actually was holding onto a dove and he like jumped across that chasm and uh yeah, that moment. I, every time I see it, I, I get really emotional because it's a very like, it's a very sincere moment captured in film. And it's and, yeah, sincere, but it's also like the perfect film moment because you have this the power of the performance, the power of the set design, the special effects, all those things, plus the score, just everything. If you could distill everything in film into one moment and just say, just see this moment, you could not watch that movie and just see that moment and be affected by it. Yeah. It's just that powerful. Yeah. And 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 that's the thing. It's like our you know when you think about it like our lives are a collection of moments and and memories and you know when we pass away it's gone, you know, or, or you know we live in we live through the people that we touch in our lives. And so it's I don't know, it's a comment on on our mortality, you know. It, it's I don't know. There's just so many layers to this movie, and so many you know different profound uh, you know plot points. And just, it's it's I don't know. It's it's just I, I always enjoy revisiting this movie for like little things like that. Yeah. That just um, you know I, I always feel that movies are very uh, you know product driven. Like they're very corporate, and I need to sell something. And where this um, one was kind of like re- a big gamble. <laughs> what was that? I'm sorry. Is that, was that where, the, where this uh, where this movie is more like a big gamble? Like honestly, yeah, yeah, and it's a real piece of art. It's like you know a slice of humanity um, that you know, like our kids will probably watch this and, and really appreciate. Yeah, you know, it's um, yeah, it, it's it's a, and it's and the the practical effects and everything. Like it is a gorgeous, gorgeous film still. 
Like, imagine watching that and then watching Tron in the movie theater and just being like, wow, I'm really underwhelmed right now from the, like, <laughs> like, how do you go from the amazing, like, like glorious looking, you know, like, I know it's completely different. Like, like, like we said, like, that's like animated and this is, you know, live action, but still like, man, like I love Tron still today, but, but like this just runs it in circles, like with story, the looks oh. and everything else. Tron the also bombed, by the way. It didn't do well. It, it, it did, yeah. That's it, true. The funny thing about Tron is, like, you know, because I'm, I'm going to school for animation, and it's, like, one of the first uses of, like, vector animation. Yeah. So it's kind of like, oh, wow, that's great that it's, like, you know, the first leap into, like, CGI and animation, like, uh, you know, in movies. And so I look at it, and I'm like, oh, I appreciate it on that respect, but, man, it's really boring. Uh, there's a lot of times where... <laughs> You just you can like leave and like do other things and come back and like you're still just walking around in some random like you know void computer state. <laughs> yeah like you, you don't have to really pay attention to that movie you kind of know what's what's gonna happen you, you, you could like you know just leave for a little while and yeah. come back half an hour and they're exactly in the same you haven't missed anything yeah. and I can't really say that about anything any movie that could do that uh, there's a couple of them. I think I, I feel like never ending story is the exact same thing but in my honest opinion. But, like, I, I, the thing about Tron is, like, I really love Tron Legacy, and I really love uh, Blade Runner 2049, which is the weirdest thing. Like, you know, two movies that came out the same year had big impacts yeah. later on in, in its life. You know, to, it had cult followings more than anything. Yeah, yeah and, totally true. And, and, and had both, you know, two sequels that I think are, are either just as good, if not better, like I mean, uh, Tron Two is better than Tron One, but like I, I think twenty forty nine, and we're going to be talking about it a lot because I have a lot more to say about that about that movie because I have only seen it once. But I, I it's it's just I think I really think that Blade Runner twenty forty nine is just as good as this one, um, and I can't wait to dive into that as well. But like, yeah, from at least from what I remember, I haven't watched it yet because we haven't we're not we're doing an episode next, but um. But yeah, I, I think it's kind of interesting how like 1982 was just so impactful. I mean, look at the thing which got a prequel, which was absolutely horrendous and terrible, and like one of the worst experiences I've ever had in a movie theater before. Because I was like, "This is awkward." Did y'all ever see that? The one with no, Marilyn with Winstead. I saw it and forgot about it. She's phenomenal, but man, that movie sucks. Um, but isn't it about like the Soviets or something like that, or like the other? Isn't it about like that first station? Yes, the first station. That, yes. Well, yeah. Kirk Russell, it, well, yeah. It literally ends with the first scene of the thing from 1982, and it's also called the thing, which is the <sighs> stupid. <laughs> so the, bad. They should go the other thing. So anyway, yeah. what are your final thoughts the on thumb. Blade Runner, guys? Any <laughs> the the thing? Any final <laughs> thoughts on Blade Runner? Well, I just want to point out one one thing, or actually a couple things. Okay. And then I'll have my final. Actually, I just want to point out a couple things. Just segue this into your final thoughts, Paul. Oh, well, I think it's like there's this, uh, there was this thing about a Blade Runner curse that like all the different companies like Pan Am, Atari, TDK, COS, RCA, like they all either like filed for bankruptcy or like lost like a ton of money. And so there's this weird thing. There's like a Blade Runner curse for like these companies that were like featured in this movie. Um, and then also, I'd be remiss my duties if I mentioned like the Vangelis soundtrack. The Vangelis soundtrack is so amazing. Yeah. It's like so essential in immersing you into this world. And well, I just uh, want to say I've mentioned it like four times. 
Oh, did you really? Yeah, several different times. I guess Paul's not listening to jump on my thoughts. I heard one mention. Oh. I didn't hear. I didn't hear multiple. Well, I talked about. I, I know. I talked that. about it at the very beginning with the the Hades land. The, yeah. the, the Hades lands. The Hades. Oh, that's right. Landscape. But I also right. just. I also right. just mentioned it a few minutes ago in talking about that final moment. I didn't say Vangeli specifically, but I said the score, all those things. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I'm full of shit. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. I mean, it's I'm not like no, it didn't get mentioned. No. Maybe I didn't mention it four times, but <laughs> yeah, you did. I need to. I just think yeah. Paul was trying to throw shade on me over here. Sure, no. I wasn't, sure, I didn't know I was going to host this until we started yeah. doing the episode. Yeah, no, I'm. Uh, I'm sorry. Hey, Paul. I'm, you know what? One thing I really do love about this movie the the music soundtrack. Who did the music soundtrack? <laughs> No one's mentioned it. No one's mentioned it. We even talked about it yet, but I want to say something about the music in this movie. No one's said anything about that. (laughs) I'm aware of. (laughs) Um, You can say what you want to say about it now that I'm done being a jerk. (laughs) No, no, that's all. I I just like, I I really like the Vangelis soundtrack. I think it really helps. It is. But like, it's so unique that it helps create, because that's how I'm, talked about earlier was it's it's so unique that it creates such a different world like different feeling especially like i think it's a different it creates a different viewing experience and i I hate to bring it up again but it's the same thing that i feel like with daft punk with uh with tron uh legacy like it's it's, this we don't we've never had like an actual music score that was like the the you know the sequel to tron but i was so immersed and i and like i didn't even like I wasn't even listening to it, but I, 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 like every time I watch the movie, I don't even listen for the soundtrack. But they're like, I'm, but I'm always like, like putting my head up and down and like tapping my feet. Sometimes I watch and I love it, but I don't even realize it until like after the movie. And the same thing with Blade Runner. I'm not tapping my feet and, and following to it, but I'm, I don't even focus on it. But it's like after the movie, I just kind of like some of the um, like melodies and stuff like that will kind of go to my head after I watch the movie, and I'm just like, oh, wow, that's right, man. God, that music, that music is awesome. But like when I'm watching it, I don't focus on it. It's just, it just, I, I just get zoned into this world, and it just adds that much to it without even sticking out. You know what I mean? Yeah, I want to mention my good buddy Watson, a guy I grew up with. So we would like late, like very late high school, maybe early college. We'd hang out in his car, and he had like a CD player, like through the tape deck kind of thing. And he would play the Blade Runner soundtrack, Vangeli's music, like ours are like his like driving music. So it's like created this very weird vibe of like, like I can't, I'm not, I can't, you can't, you almost can't like just hum it, but you can hear it in your head. It's a weird soundtrack, but yeah. But as we're like driving around the windy rural streets of Pennsylvania with Watson, Watson's like old Buick or whatever it was in that car, listening to Vangeli's Blade Runner score. So just had to, yeah, that's, that's one thing I definitely didn't mention before this. So thanks to Watson for making me imagine I was flying a spinner through the forest at the, the end of the movie. That's okay. I, I, know, dri- I drive around listening to Pirates of the Caribbean all the time. That's true, though. I love listening to Pirates of the Caribbean in the car. Anyway. Uh, so final thoughts on Blade Runner. <laughs> oh, I want to mention one thing. You know how, like, I think, like, the Vangel soundtrack is, like, almost like a character on its own. No one's mentioned anything about that, so don't bring I, it up. <laughs> Wait, what was it? <laughs> like, Sorry. It that matter. starts me up when that scene with with Rachel and Deckard, when the, you know, the sex scene. And they have that like goofy like saxophone solo. Yeah, it's like a very suddenly eighties. <laughs> it like it like, cracks yeah. me up every time because like 
I'm kidding. I'm joking. It's like yeah. it's like it's like a it's softcore like, porn soundtrack or something. Yeah. I imagine no, like, it's, like it's, it's just that stupid eighties. It's, it's, it's that stupid eighties freaking yeah, like what you're saying, like saxophone. It's so and every like yeah, and every like love scene in every eighties action movie in particular, that was what it sounded like. I will say this: I don't like a majority of eighty films. Like I would say, I probably don't like ninety percent of eighties movies. I like eighty-two percent of nineties films, but I don't. I don't like that. I don't like that many '90s films either. Like, man, the '90s are I, tough. But I meant to say 82% of '80s films is a joke because I was born uh, in '82, and I said the wrong decade as the follow-up decade. <laughs> <laughs> so I couldn't even get my own joke right. <laughs> so, um, so, final thoughts. Okay, so, Blade Runner. Paul. Actually, I have, I have. Okay, I keep on, but I have so much to say about this movie. I, I just love this movie. Um, you were paying attention. Thought... You, you use your tidbits throughout, Paul. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you don't throw all your tidbits uh, in at Final Thoughts. <laughs> I always here. thought of Roy as, like, Pinocchio in a way, you know? Yeah. Like, he's Pinocchio trying to become a real boy, and he meets Geppetto. I don't know. I just, I, for some reason, that the, the Pinocchio, like, uh, parallelism or whatever, it, it just, like, I always think of Pinocchio when I see this, like, how Roy's trying to become a real boy. See, I, I, I see more Data or the Bicentennial Man more as Pinocchio as opposed to Roy Batty. I think Roy Batty wants to just live. I don't think he wants to be human. Uh, yeah, he is human. He becomes human in trying to just per- live longer. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, and so, I mean, it's like the same aim that they're trying to become human or become real, you know, quote yeah. unquote. And, and uh, so I would be remiss in my duties if I didn't ask this question. Do you think Deckard is a replicant? Oh, God damn it. No, because I, I don't think so. I think like he should. It, Ridley Scott has said that he is, but everyone else, the writers, Harrison Ford, everyone else says no. And I think he cannot be. This is actually a good segue for our final thoughts. He, I think he cannot be a replicant for the power of the film because it's that it's machine versus man essentially, and machine teaching man to be human. What? What? Honestly, what? You know. What happens if he is a replicant? Like, then he doesn't learn his lesson. He's just like, well, all right. Like, the whole thing is about Deckard actually being uh, growing from this experience and actually seeing the humanization within these, uh, you know, within these androids. Like, him being one defeats that entire purpose and just, and it all makes it is just be like, aha. And you're just like, all right, it's not that, it's not that good of a twist, but okay. Yeah, it's like, is this like, a Twilight Zone episode all of a sudden? Why do we need... Yeah, like, you're like, you're like okay. Like a, like a, a gotcha twist for the sake of a twist. <laughs> to be fair, it's, in the book, there's a sequence where Deckard as well does... And the questioning is humanity. Deckard wonders if he's a replicant in the book. And he actually hooks himself up to the machine and it does the performs test. the test to, on himself. So that's yeah. a theme within the book. So maybe that's sort of kind of how it got in there. Is he one in the um, book? No. Okay. He's he's human in the book for sure. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, the sequel answers that question, right? No, it doesn't. Oh, really? Because yeah, if he is a replicant, he could just be that no expiration date guy. And I think that if he's what's... a replicant, why does he get the crap beat out of him so badly by Roy Batty too? He should at least be able to hold his own a little bit better there. Yeah, it's true. Physically, yeah. I mean, it's like why would they make this one replicant like normal? Human strength and very mopey. Well, yeah, yeah. Why would they make a mopey replicant that hunts replicants? <laughs> well, they they mention um, in passing, like Brian mentions that like six escaped 
and one of them got like fried and or something like that. And so I think there was a theory that that he was repurposed by uh, the police department or whatever and became a Blade Runner. But why would he? Re- but why would he have retired and, and they brought him back though? Like that's the other thing is like if he is retired. Yeah, but but that's the, the theory people have is that he's like one like from that passing line that he's one of those retired replicants that they brought back and like that gaff is like you know like the uh what is it the um the unicorn or lot like he basically has gaff's memories and gaff's like uh blade running skills or whatever and so so that that's all and then the whole the unicorn like like gaff knows his memories and basically the the memories that were implanted in Deckard are gaff's memories and it's like I guess that's fine and all, but I, as far as a, from a story, the story, um, from a storytelling perspective, I agree. Like, I think it's way better for, you know, this human to be who, you know, lives in a world that uh, has been dehumanized and, and, you know, treats others like, you know, like, like this whole side lost their humanity through this dystopia. And, um, and you know, Batty, he became human through his experiences, and uh, and he's teaching you know Deckard how to become human. No, 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 Paul. Just, he became profound. a real he became a real boy. Yeah, I just I don't know. I just think it's way more profound, and it it makes more sense in a storytelling perspective to do it that way. He's he's human, and he's learning humanity through his creation. And that's like, you kind of do that. Like, as I mean, I imagine, I imagine as a parent, you kind of learn how to, you know, more empathy and more um, about humanity, seen through, through the perspective of your of your daughter. Yeah, I mean, my know? kids, my kids are both replicants. So I don't know how it works. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you, but you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's like it has like that symbolism or, you know, going on there that it, it makes. No, and cool. I agree. I'm making the jokes as Paul gives like the serious, thoughtful, yeah. accurate <laughs> thing. But I, I agree. I totally agree with what you're saying with that. And I think it's true. The, the power of the ending changes by that. And to me, like I said, if you ever listen to everyone else, like Harrison Ford said, like he's disappointed to hear that Ridley Scott thinks he's a replicant. Cause he's like, I didn't play it as a replicant, you know? Yeah. And, and the writers both say, they didn't have things like they talk about like David Peebles was talking about how he had like a line in one. And I think like Hampton Fancher as well, both the writers where they would have lines where he would say like, he's a beat up old machine type of thing. And it was meant always meant ironically. Like he was sort of using those, those are lines that never made it to any of the final versions, but they were saying that's kind of how he would just relate to things like, you know, I'm just a beat up old, robot like not literally saying that but that i think it would also take away his line when he meets the you know the owner of the um of oh my god what's it called tyrell uh yeah yeah the tyrell you know where he's talking about you know machines you know machines are either for you don't like replicants and he's just and he's just like no it's like well they're just machines that are just uh either like it's like they get their work done or not or something like that i can't oh yeah it's like yeah exactly it's just like like a tool basically it's like you use your yeah use it for like use it for good purpose or bad. Yeah. Not to that, what he says, but to that effect. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Where Deckard yeah. has a lot of different things and a lot of angles to it, to what's going on to where like, that doesn't really make any sense. And it also just kind of like, yeah, it just kind of takes it away. 
where you're like and I, I look at and then I also look at like that Decker being human as a very optimistic message um, in this movie because it's showing that there is hope in humanity that they can change yeah. their prejudices and, and their biases. And, you know, because many people look, you know, view replicants the same way Decker did in the beginning where they're just things to be hunted and killed. Like they have no, there's no, you know, they have complete disregard for these, you know, basically servants. And yeah. so through the course of the film, he changes, there's a character arc and he changes to where he sees, you know, Batty as human, and you know, if somebody like Deckard, who is, uh, you know, basically is a cop and like can can you know kills these replicants with like no pre- like just um, without any discretion and without any emotion, that somebody like that can be converted, then maybe humanity itself can be converted and like realize yeah. that so much more. Um, you know that they can reach out to replicants and realize that, that that you know they are there is humanity there and and um, that we can we can change you know and so I think that's just a very hopeful and optimistic message you know and again it just feeds into uh, it just it just makes more the movie more profound yeah making that message whereas you know if you say he is a replicant it's like okay then what? Like, why? why yeah, then what's the, all right. What does that say about the movie? Like, nothing. It doesn't, you know, it's just like a, like you said, like a Twilight Zone kind of gotcha thing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't add anything to the story. I just, I don't know. I love this movie so much, and it's funny how, when I first saw it, it was, I kind of had, I was like, oh, like, it had this reputation of being this boring movie, and I was like, oh, crap, like. Well, it has its moments there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, and I love it. Don't get me wrong. Kind of rough, and but there's like so much going on with it that you kind of forgive. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I like, forget, or also just kind of, I just kind of like, all right, whatever. Like, I've seen worse. Like, I've seen Watchmen. Uh, <laughs> you know, I've seen Watchmen's yeah. love scene. So, <laughs> like, I, I've seen much worse. So, I mean, why do you think it failed in 1982? Because it was a rated R film, it was rated R. It was it came out against at that time a uh, you know the thing which is which was directed by somebody who was a way bigger deal director wise, and uh, you know Kurt Russell and a bunch. I mean the the thing definitely had a lot more hype to it. I would assume because at that point sci like there's a lot of new sci fi that came out that didn't do well and a lot of old sci fi that was coming out that did really well. So it was just kind of like that one thing. And then also yeah, E. T. Because E. T. a family movie. It just that that that's that's why it failed because it was rated R. It was a big gamble and went up against the thing, and then right after ET came out, yeah, totally with Tyler. It's just it's a heavy movie. It's a dense movie. It takes repeated viewings to unpack too, so it yeah. kind of grows. When you see the first time, you're, you're to a degree. I'm not sure what I watched, what happened. Like it's it's one of those movies that you unpack. That's kind of why those scenes that bore me bore me because I've seen them so many times. I've seen him doing that to Tesla, you know. So I want to get to the more interesting quote things in there. I'd rather watch That's... Harrison Ford do that than watch Batman shoot bricks in Batman in The Dark Knight. <laughs> Detective work. <laughs> oh God. That's a, that's the thing I love about this movie is like. You know, I'll think about it when I haven't seen it. You know, I'll just think about it randomly. Like, what does this scene mean? Or, you know, why did, why was this story decision made? Or, you know, it's just always like 
going on in my brain, like thinking about this movie. And so, um, bad I mean, that's Paul. what I love about that. Bad news, What's Paul. That? Those are bad news, Paul. That's actually a memory implant. You didn't actually oh, experience uh, that. It was a different Paul that yeah. did. You it's are, the Edward James almost. Yeah, Edward James almost <laughs> is the one who had those that lived that out. Not you, Paul. <laughs> Yeah, no, and, and that, I think that's why it's like a cult hit is because even when you're not watching, you're still thinking about it, and it becomes like, you know, it's it's uh, it, it asks all these questions that you know you 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 ask in your in 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 uh, in your in your life, you know, like what what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to love another? What does it mean to exist? And what happens when we die? And it has asked all these questions. And so I love it. And I'll stop talking. I could talk forever about this movie. No, you're totally I'll fine. I, 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 I love this movie. Clearly, Paul. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love this movie too. I've seen it three times, but I've seen like bits and pieces of it and a lot of things around it as well. Now, I think I, think I need to watch this movie like every three or four years. And, um, I I really do like Deckard. I think Harrison Ford was actually like really good in this film. I think this is actually my favorite film of of his, uh with him in it. And I don't think this is Ridley Scott's best movie, but I think it's probably the most impactful one. Uh for me, like I I think Alien will always be my favorite Ridley Scott film. I think Alien is probably going to be my favorite sci-fi film of all time still and my probably one of my favorite horror films as well. Um but you know, I I think this is such a great follow up to Alien, and everything after this was kind of like hit or miss with him. It was crazy, but um, and so yeah, it's definitely his most interesting. I think for sure, like yeah, absolutely, the most, the most dissectable. It's it's his most like Kubrickian film, and interestingly percent. enough, in the happy ending, there's footage that's unused footage from The Shining where he, Rachel and Deckard ride off into the sunset. They have you know they they film them like somewhere in, you know, over here in Big Bear in Southern California, but the shots coming in, uh, Ridley Scott said he knew Stanley Kubrick had hours and hours and hours of footage that he wouldn't use because he would just send the helicopter crew fly all over Montana. And so he's like, yeah, you can use whatever you want as long as it wasn't in The Shining. So <laughs> that ending, weirdly, the happy ending to Blade Runner is part of The Shining. Just, That's funny. Probably the weirdest connection in the movie. So, no, we're technically officially talking. I mean, we've talked about the voiceover and stuff. We're officially talking about the final cut. Shared version, universe. Is, I'm kidding. But if, yeah, <laughs> it's also in the same universe as The Shining, Blade Runner, and Alien. So. Oh, but man. yeah, that's that's all I have to say for this one. We next time excited to talk about Blade Runner twenty forty nine, where I'm sure we'll have plenty more to say about this. I certainly only touched on my thoughts and feelings on this movie. There's so 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 much to say, so much more behind the scenes stuff, so much more in the story. But it's just a great film, a powerful film, and a great film to just to revisit. It's one of those movies where you'll, you'll find something new in it when you look at it again and you look at it again. And I don't know how many times I've seen it. It's, it, it's been a while since recently, but it's one of those films that I always am intentionally do try to revisit before too long because it'll make me think about how I relate to my own life and my fellow humans. And now, you know, this is the first time actually I've probably watched it since I have kids. So it, changes the viewing experience a little bit in that regard too so this is a lot of fun guys we got to talk about it we almost talked as long as the movie which is kind of cool too <laughs> but that's totally fine i know i i could talk about this movie for another i mean i, I love this movie i love this movie as well 
But um, but you know what? We have to end the podcast now. So where can they find your stuff, Josiah? You can find me at Josiah is right on YouTube and uh, also my Instagram. Yeah, Instagram's pictures of my dog and kids. But YouTube, it's videos about stuff like this, geeky stuff, collecting, writing, things like that. Josiah is right. W R I T E. I guess if you don't know how to spell Josiah either, that's pretty tricky. J O S I A H. <laughs> so yeah. If you can't spell is, I'm sorry. All righty. Paul? Oh, I will be here. Possibly All right. watching Blade Runner again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, the whole, uh, when, we, when we talk about 2049, so our next episode will be Blade Runner 2049, and Paul's yeah. just going to talk about Blade Runner again and again. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, yeah, no, I, uh, yeah, I'll be moderating that one, so let's uh, – <laughs> I'll make sure to be prepared for that one. Perfect. Which no one was technically prepared for this one. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Oh, man. Alrighty, and thanks for listening in. You can check out all of our shows and offerings on Spotify, on Google Podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, and any podcast app. You can also go to our website, thegrankygathering.com, for our articles, our seven other shows, and also our videos and more. You can also go on our YouTube for our Let's Plays. We also post this on YouTube. Our music has been provided by Carlisle Laurent. So come and join the gathering. Have a wonderful weekend. GGG. Oh, wait. Let me say one more thing. Okay. What's that? Home again, home again, jiggity jig. I just had to say it. There you go. <laughs> What's on the silver screen? I got some takes you wouldn't believe. Grand Geek Gathering.